Hey, good morning, everybody. Oh, hey, Dave, I'm starting. Am I on? Good morning, everybody. Hey, thank you. Welcome to week number two. Back to in-person services. Remember, if you've got kids, they're going to go uh, out the double doors and, and enter into the kids' room through the lobby so we can check them and get their hands washed and all that kind of stuff. Do you have the nursery through the doors over there? Uh, on my left, your right. Uh, what else is that? Hey, um, really excited for uh, our conversation this morning as a part of the message with Antoine, um, who's right over here. And uh, I figured out why all the preachers on TV have to have the towels and like wipe their faces because they help set up every time before they preach. So you got to wipe. So uh, I need a hand towel uh, and a handheld mic, apparently, then I can be a TV preacher. Anyway, thanks for being here this morning, both in person and thank you for joining us online. If you are watching online, you can click just above the chat window and check out the notes for today, which aren't very many, uh, and also get the Bible app and make sure to sign in to chat with our online host this morning, and uh, we'll keep you up to date on what's going on. Uh, we're doing the communion the same as we did last week, so there'll be people at each station handing out the individual communion uh, containers. I don't know what they're called. Uh, anyway, so when it gets time for that, uh, go ahead. We are going to shorten the music portion of the, of the service up a little bit today. Uh, and so we'll be getting to communion and kids out a little faster this morning. So Antoine and I have some time to share uh, in the service. Okay, let's pray and then we'll begin. God, thanks for loving us and for bringing us back together this morning. Thank you for those who could make it here in person. And thank you for those who are watching online. Um, God, we just pray that the name of your son Jesus is lifted high today through the singing, through the message, a conversation with Antoine, through our time of communion and offering, God, that in everything that we do, your son might be exalted and uh, that, that every person possible today, whether here in person or online, uh, finds real life in your son, Jesus. And for those of us who found that real life already, that, that today uh, we would learn some ways to look a little bit more like you. Uh, and so God, would you help us do that? Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, our ears today uh, to hear from you exactly what we need. And would you just uh, fill this place with your presence today as we worship you? We ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Got above all the world in motion, got above all my hopes and fears, and I don't care what the world throws at me now. song. All in all that the world would know your name. 
God above all the world in motion. God above all my hopes and fears. And I don't care what the world owes at me now. That died just to set me free. Salvation is here. Salvation is here and he lives in me. Salvation is here. If you are alive and you live in me, salvation is here. Salvation is here and he lives in me. Salvation is here. If you are the key. 
Church, um, it's time we uh, have for communion, and here at Real Life, we have um, open communion. Um, before we get that going, um, what I want to talk to you about this morning is about what I've been studying on uh, our daily devotion, my wife and I, over the past month, and so we've been doing our online, pretty much with our phone, we do a devotion before we go to bed, and we read several verses. Actually, I'm reading the verses. My wife can't see, but uh, I read the verses and we talk about it a little bit and then we have a prayer and then we have a good night's sleep. And one that's really touched me the most is the blessings of God gives us every day. Things that we take for granted. Um, and even though times are tough right now, people are struggling, we are still blessed. We're blessed to be able to meet on Sunday mornings. We are blessed to be able to get up and do things a little bit more than um, a lot of other people that are not able to do that kind of stuff that are really restricted uh, because of the, the virus and everything else. But the blessings that you have, you need to be able to count your blessings every day. Um, and don't take them for granted. And it, we do take it for granted, but ask God for forgiveness and help us um, accept those blessings that we have and help us get through what we have to do. So I just want to share that with you. Um, even though times are tough, we are blessed. We are blessed to come to church. We are blessed to be able to worship, to sing, and to fellowship. So at this time, we're going to reflect on what's happening with Jesus when he died on the cross. He came, he sacrificed his life for us, and the blood he shed for us. Here at Real Life, we are able to um, have open communion. So what we're doing now is we're able to have people stand out at each station and hand, pass out the communion to you. Um, there are individual cups and with crackers. Um, and then once you get those, you share it up with your family. Um, think about um, the things that you are blessed with. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing. Thank you for the sacrifice you've done for us. Let us take this, the, the wine and the crackers that we're going to represent your body and blood. Let us be able to remember and reflect on that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross his blood poured out for us the weight of heaven 
It's good to be back and good to be back with you uh, here in this place. Um, so uh, good job, um, band, and especially Tristan. I put the wrong song. I put the wrong forever. <laughs> I put the wrong forever in the, in the slide progression. That's why the words weren't up on the screen till halfway through. That's why she looked like she didn't know the words because she didn't know the words. So anyway, good to have you this morning. Hey, um, every Sunday we take a little time out to worship God through our giving. Generosity helps us to keep grounded in our faith. God was generous with his son. Jesus was generous with his life. And we get to be generous in supporting the mission and ministry of his church. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 12, Solomon writes this. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Ain't that the truth? So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. People who work hard, they sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's rest. Having wealth is not bad, okay? It's not a bad thing at all. But when wealth replaces God in our lives so that, we, so that we look to our wealth to provide for our needs, Solomon says that's when wealth doesn't satisfy. The more you have, the more you want, and the more you have, the more people want to help you spend it. But those who work hard, who trust God to provide their needs, they sleep well. Those who are trying to protect their wealth have a hard time sleeping. Generosity helps us trust God because it redirects our thoughts to God's provision instead of our prosperity, right? So we look to God to provide for the things we need instead of just our bank accounts. So we want to invite you to give today as God leads, to practice that spirit of generosity and to rely on God's uh, provision instead of just your prosperity. Here's how you can give. You can go to your mobile device on your computer. Uh, if you're, if you brought your computer, I don't know why we have that. Uh, anyway, uh, probably nobody brought their computer in today. Okay, so I thought on your mobile device, you can go to reallifecc.us. You can click on the orange give icon in the bottom right hand corner. You can follow that giving flow. Make sure that you set up an account that will help us with administration, uh, and you can give that way. Make sure you're signed in. That way, all your information is saved and all that kind of stuff. If you are on our online campus, just click on the blue give. Uh, button on the chat and uh, you can follow those uh, that process same giving flow right from that uh, right from that page so let's pray God thanks for loving us thanks for giving to us thanks for providing for us God even when we feel like we don't have enough you are enough and you continue to give and give and give God we want to follow your pattern of generosity and so we want to give as well. We want to be generous with the church. We want to be generous with others. We just want to be generous in our lives. And uh, so giving to you helps us do that. And so today, God, I pray that um, we would just be practicing that uh, as you lead and you direct us because you love a cheerful giver. And we don't want to force anybody. We want to give everybody the opportunity to practice that generosity. God, we pray that we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.
so welcome to week six of our Unstoppable series. Today, uh, I told you last week we're kind of flopping the week six and week five so that I could uh, share with Antoine. And so today, we're going to do uh, last week's message. Paul's second missionary journey started out pretty rough. He has a major argument with his partner, Barnabas. They were on the first missionary journey, and they planted a whole bunch of churches, and things were going great. But as they got ready to set on their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas got into a fight about a guy named John Mark. John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas and gone back home, and Paul wasn't very happy about that. Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul didn't, so they argued, and Paul kind of said, okay, that's it. I'm going out on my own. So in the second missionary journey, Paul is like in charge, right? He becomes the leader. And things are going pretty good under Paul's brand new leadership. He's got Silas with him, uh, who's kind of like his partner. And then um, they've got some other guys with him. Uh, he's got, brings Timothy on, and Luke is there for part of that time. And they're just going on. And they're going to all the churches that Paul planted on the first missionary journey and just encouraging them with what's been going on in Jerusalem. And it's like going great. Like every church they stop at, the text says that, that the people are happy, that they're strengthened in their faith. And the church grows daily in numbers. So more and more people are coming to these churches that Paul is sharing this information with. Paul and his new companions are feeling pretty good. Like, hey, God is blessing us and everything is going well. Like we're doing or some dad pull their kid a little closer as I walk by. Am I going to walk through the parking lot at the bank or, or at work someplace and somebody's going to see me walking and lock their doors? Am I going to be jogging down the road and somebody today is going to yell some racial thing out the window as I'm minding my own business just going down the road? And so on June 3rd, at about 11 o'clock, my thinking began to change. And I started thinking about how my friends might feel instead of just how I feel. And so today, we're going to talk about that a little bit with Antoine. But first, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what has gone on for the last lots of years. Because there are some things that have happened in this country that aren't real great. And, and we sometimes, we being the white majority, sometimes think, I wish these other folks would just, would just leave this alone. But there's a reason that it hasn't gone away. There's a reason we haven't been able to move past it. And, and maybe right now is the time that we're going to be able to if we can figure things out, if we can take advantage of the opportunity that we have. So I want you to watch this video first. And then Antoine and I are going to share. We need to talk about race. Why are people protesting? Why are people angry? Slavery ended 150 years ago. The civil rights movement was 60 years ago. Racial discrimination is illegal now. Heck, we even had a black president. So why are people still upset? We're going to go through history and we're going to look at some data. And we're going to go quickly so this video doesn't get too long. So hang on. These are two households in America. One is black, the other is white. Today, the average black household has 60% of the income of the average white household, but only one-tenth of the household wealth. 
Why does that matter? Well, household wealth helps send kids to school, helps launch small businesses, stabilizes loss of income, and helps families survive catastrophic events like divorce or unemployment. What's amazing about this number is that there are lots of extremely wealthy African Americans. Movie stars, pop stars, 75% of the NBA, 70% of the NFL, Oprah, Tyler Perry, Ben Carson, Morgan Freeman. And there are a lot of extremely poor white families. Think of Appalachia and other parts of rural America. But even when we factor all that in, the average black household still has only one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. How did that happen? Well, here we go. What happened after we freed the slaves, after the Civil War ended? Nine states enacted vagrancy laws, making it a crime to not have a job. The law was applied only to black men. Eight of those states then allowed prisoners, the black men who'd just been arrested for not having a job, to be hired out to plantation owners with little or no pay going to the prisoners themselves. So, that's right, men who had been freed from the plantations found themselves right back on the plantations. Additional laws prohibited mischief and insulting gestures, which allowed more black men to be arrested and created a huge market for convict leasing. Working conditions for these leased convicts could be worse than slavery because the plantation owner leasing the black prisoner had no long-term interest in his well-being. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had mandated racial segregation by law, Jim Crow laws, which supported a social ostracism for blacks that extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels and restaurants, hospitals, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. White politicians competed with each other to be more strict and specific on segregation. For example, a law prohibiting blacks and whites from playing chess together. No interracial chess playing! That might lead to lawn darts. In 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that these Jim Crow laws were perfectly legal because they, quote, reflected customs and traditions and, quote, preserved public peace and good order. These laws stayed in place until 1954, when the idea of separate but equal was struck down in the ruling known as Brown versus Board of Education. So what happened next after Brown? Well, in 1956, the Southern Manifesto was signed by 101 out of 128 Congress members from the South, pledging to maintain Jim Crow by all means possible. Five states passed nearly 50 new Jim Crow laws after 1954. Private whites-only schools, dubbed segregation academies, popped up all across the South, many of them Christian. But now widespread civil rights protests, combined with anti-war protests that were occasionally becoming violent, inspired the political rise of law and order rhetoric. Richard Nixon became the first candidate to campaign specifically on a platform of law and order. In 1968, 81% of Americans agreed that law and order had broken down in this country, and the majority blamed communists and Negroes who start riots. Let's go back to household wealth. The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. Why is that? Because the number one source of intergenerational wealth in America is home ownership. And from the 1930s to well into the 1960s, the federal government enacted policies to actively encourage white families to own homes and discourage black families from doing the same. 
1934, the Federal Housing Administration created a risk rating system to determine which neighborhoods were safe investment for federally backed mortgages. Black neighborhoods were deemed too risky, marked off in maps with red ink, in a practice now known as redlining. After World War II, a boom of new suburban housing was built all over the country, much of it restricted by deed to whites only. In 1948, 40% of new housing developments in Minneapolis, for example, had covenants prohibiting purchase by African Americans. So blacks couldn't live in white neighborhoods and couldn't get federally insured loans for black neighborhoods. Until 1950, the Realtor's Code of Ethics specifically prohibited selling a house in a white neighborhood to a non-white family. You could lose your Realtor's license if you helped a black family buy a home in a white neighborhood. In the 1930s, the FHA's underwriting manual said, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. The FHA went on to recommend that highways would be a great way to separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. The FHA funded huge white-only suburban housing developments, leaving blacks behind in inner cities. After World War II, the GI Bill provided subsidized mortgages to help millions of men returning from war to buy their first home. While technically eligible for the GI Bill, the way it was administered left one million black veterans largely on the outside looking in. In New York and New Jersey, the GI Bill insured more than 67,000 new mortgages. Fewer than 100 of those went for homes purchased by non-whites. In 1947, there were 3,200 mortgages in Mississippi guaranteed by the government for returning veterans. Of the 3,200, only two went to black veterans. As a result, white families after the war were able to build home equity, growing wealth for retirement, inheritance, and college education for their kids. One historian has stated that there was no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. And then came the war on drugs. Inner-city blacks were extremely vulnerable economically. The overwhelming majority of African Americans in 1970 lacked college degrees and had grown up in fully segregated schools. In the second half of the 20th century, factories and manufacturing jobs moved to the suburbs. Black workers struggled to follow the jobs. They couldn't live in many of the new suburban developments. And as late as 1970, only 28% of black fathers had access to a car. When a white man in Cicero, Illinois, just outside Chicago, sublet an apartment to a black family, the white community rioted, setting fire to the apartment building and smashing windows until the National Guard had to intervene. The result of all of this. In 1970, 70% of African American men had good blue-collar jobs. By 1987, only 28% did. As unemployment skyrocketed in African-American communities, so did drug use. As drug use increased, so did crime. A dynamic today that we see playing out in white rural communities hit hard by unemployment and opioid addiction. Throughout the 1970s, white America became increasingly concerned by images of black violence shown on TV and in magazines. Drugs were the problem. Drug dealers and drug users were the enemy. So we decided to treat the drug epidemic not as a health crisis, but as a crisis of criminality, and we militarized our response. 
During the Reagan-Bush years from 1981 to 1991, how we invested money in anti-drug allocation completely changed. The anti-drug budget for the Department of Defense went from $33 million in 1981 to more than $1 billion in 1991. The Drug Enforcement Agency's budget to fight criminality and drug use went from $86 million to more than a billion dollars. Then we came to the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which carried mandatory minimum sentences, much harsher for the distribution of crack cocaine, which was associated with blacks, than powder cocaine, which was associated with whites. Mandated evictions from public housing for any tenant who permitted drug-related criminal activity to occur on or near premises. It eliminated many government benefits, including student loans, for anyone convicted of a drug crime. The 1988 revision set a five-year minimum sentence for possessing any amount of crack cocaine, even if there was no intent to distribute. Previously, it had been a one-year maximum sentence for possessing any amount of any drug without the intent to distribute. Now, it might seem like we're picking on Republicans, so now it's time to pick on some Democrats. During the Clinton presidency, the funding for public housing was cut by $17 billion. At the same time, the funding for prisons increased by $19 billion. The number of Americans imprisoned for drug crimes exploded. In 1980, there were 41,000 Americans imprisoned for drug crimes. Today, there are more than a half million, more than the entire 1980 prison population. Most arrests are for possession. In 2005, 80% of the arrests were for possessing drugs, not selling drugs. In a bizarre twist, we also militarized our police forces. Between 1997 and 1999, the Pentagon handled 3.4 million orders for military equipment from more than 11,000 police agencies, including 253 aircraft, including Black Hawk and Huey helicopters, 7,800 M16 rifles, 181 grenade launchers, grenade launchers for the police, 8,000 bulletproof helmets, 1,200 night vision goggles. We also changed policing tactics. A no-knock entry is when a SWAT team literally breaks down your door or smashes in through the windows, like in E.T. when the cops come flying in from every direction looking for E.T. So back to Minneapolis. In 1986, Minneapolis SWAT teams performed no-knock entries 35 times. Ten years later, in 1996, they performed no-knock entries 700 times. That's two every day. There were financial incentives for arresting more drug users. Federal grants to local police departments were tied to the number of drug arrests. Research suggests the huge surge in arrests from increased drug enforcement was due more to budget incentives than to actual increases in drug use. So what was the result? An explosion of our prison population. In 25 years, the U.S. prison population went from 350,000 to over 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We imprison a higher percentage of our black population than South Africa ever did during apartheid. Data shows that the increased prison population was driven primarily by changes in sentencing policy. There was no visible connection between higher incarceration rates and higher violent crime rates.
If you are a drug felon, you are barred from public housing. You are ineligible for food stamps. You're forced to check the box on employment applications marking yourself as a convicted felon. A criminal record has been shown to reduce the likelihood of getting a callback or job offer by as much as 50%. The negative impact of a criminal record for an African-American job applicant is twice as large as for a white applicant. In 2006, one in 106 white men was behind bars. For black men, it was one in 14. For black men between the age of 20 and 35, the age where families are built, it's one in nine. Overall, African Americans and white Americans use drugs at roughly the same rate, but the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of whites. It may be true that there isn't explicit racism in our legal system anymore, but it doesn't mean justice is blind. A study, a law in Georgia, permitted prosecutors to seek life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Over the period of the study, this law was used against 1% of white second-time offenders and 16% of black second-time offenders. As a result, 98% of prisoners serving life sentences under this law were black. Study, African-American youth in the U.S. make up 16% of all youth but 28% of all juvenile arrests, 35% of youth sent to adult court instead of juvenile court, and 58% of youth admitted to adult state prison. A study, blacks on the New Jersey Turnpike make up 15% of all drivers, but 42% of all stops by police and 73% of all arrests. Among all drivers stopped, white drivers were two times more likely than black drivers to be carrying drugs. Study, Volusia County, Florida, 5% of drivers were black or Latino, but 80% of drivers stopped were black or Latino. Study, Oakland, California. Black drivers are twice as likely as white drivers to be stopped and three times more likely to be searched. In Minneapolis, Philando Castile had been pulled over 49 times in 13 years, mostly for minor infractions. The 49th time he was pulled over, he was shot by the officer while sitting inside his car. He'd been pulled over for a broken taillight. Chuck Colson's organization, Prison Fellowship, recently organized a manifesto that was signed by evangelical leaders asserting that our over-reliance on incarceration fails to make us safer or restore the people and communities who have been harmed. Unconscious bias seeps into schools, too, as white teachers often assume black students are less intelligent than they actually are. A gifted student usually has to be recommended by a teacher to move to a gifted track. When a teacher is black, an equally gifted white and black student have comparable chances of being recommended. When the teacher is white, the black student's odds of being recommended are cut in half. Are white teachers racist? No. Are they affected by bias? Yes. And it affects black students every day. So where are we? The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. This didn't happen by accident. It happened by policy. We, the majority culture, told them where they could live and where they couldn't. Then we moved most of the jobs to the places we told them they couldn't live. 
when the predictable explosion of unemployment and poverty resulted in a predictable increase in drug use and crime, we criminalized the problem. We built $19 billion of new jails and sold grenade launchers to the police. As a result, a white boy born in America today has a 1 in 23 chance of going to prison in his lifetime. For a black boy, it's 1 in 4. And that is why people are angry. Many people care deeply about these issues. Many have suggested solutions. Some of those have been tested, with results ranging from moderate success to abject failure. I'm not here to tell you what the right solutions are, because I don't know. I'm just here to ask you to do one thing. It is the thing that begins every journey to a solution for every problem. What am I asking you to do? Care. I watched that video the other day after Antoine and I had talked the first time, and um, I, was, I was amazed because I thought, again, that we had moved past this. And yet, um, I, I remember as a young kid, and the, uh, well, I wasn't that young, um, but the uh, mandatory minimum sentences coming out, I remember that. I remember seeing that on TV um, and, uh, and hearing about that. Uh, and, and I remember thinking, that's a good thing. Um, so, we don't, we don't have a lot of time, but I really thought that video might help us um, kind of understand uh, what's going on. And uh, I, I think in particular, the thing that hit me was the uh, black family that moved into the house, was that Cicero, Illinois or something? And the, and the white people there rioted and burned down the house and broke out windows and probably everybody cheered for that. But we're not cheering today. So um, we're going to kind of, uh, but this is Antoine, by the way. <laughs> and I, uh, Antoine uh, went to school with uh, probably at least some of you um, who are younger than me. We've got an echo really, really bad. Yeah. And I don't know how to fix it. You're working? Okay, hold on, before you start. Yes. Can I do this really quickly? Can everyone hear me? Deep breath. No, I'm, I'm honest, God, this is, this is hard. It's what he did with me the other this night. This is so hard, okay? But we've got to have these tough conversations without one side getting mad. We got to. So can we breathe deep and work through it? Yay! Yeah. So the plan was to uh, take Acts chapter 16 and run down through a couple ideas from that text and uh, kind of deal with them from the perspective of, of race. And so we're going to try to do that in the next uh, about 13, 14 minutes. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to go fast. So the first thing that we noticed in, um, in the text is that, uh, is that Paul and his group are kept from going into Asia, and then they're kept from going into Bithynia by the, by the Spirit. And my first question, really, I think for all of us is this. When was the last time that you were kept from doing something that you wanted to do by the Spirit of God? Something you thought, something you wanted to say, something you wanted to do, something you wanted to post on social media, and God was like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. And so you didn't. Can you think of the last time 
that happen? I, I think I would say it this way. If you and I as followers of God can't be kept from doing what we want to do, maybe we aren't really following God. If we only follow God when God leads us to do the things we want to do, and not when he's stopping us from doing the things we want to do, can we really say that we're following God? I think that's part of the problem. We think we know where we're going, like Paul and his companions, and what we're doing is right, but um, what if, like Paul's plan, it's not? It's not right. What if the way we're going isn't right? Um, so, you got any thoughts about that? My, everyone at the beginning of the year, including myself, was talking about how important 2020 was. This was the year of perfect vision, which is a cheesy cliche. It is a very, very terrible cliche. What if it's right? Think about what's happened in the first seven months, as we're almost in July. God made us sit in the house. We had to sit down. It was a, it was a biblical timeout, I'll call it. But we had to see what happened with George Floyd. You had to see it because you couldn't go outside and be distracted. So what if the vision for right now is God saying, look, we have something we keep hiding. We keep talking around. We keep moving around. it. You don't get to do that no more. You got to look at it. And then we get to fix it. One of the very, very important things that I have realized over my life, racism does not stand up to relationships doesn't. I say it this way, racism doesn't stand up to contact. If you know me, you, you, you understand who I am and how I feel and what I go through. And then you, you, you have empathy. I, there's a lot of sympathy right now. I'm sorry this is happening. I'm sorry this is happening. Empathy is being able to see yourself in that situation. When you have empathy, it changes. Because with empathy, then you get that feeling of that could be me. What if God's making us look at this to change it? Yeah, I think, I think that's good. And I think that's very, <laughs> I mean, the conversation we're having, I think that's uh, right, down the, right down the line. I, I really got this in my notes. I, 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 want, you to, I want you to share it, that, uh, that second thing. Because um, I thought this was really good perspective about what's going on. Oh right yeah, now, yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is great. Okay, so <laughs> you're gonna like this. Uh, let me let me do this first. Okay, the thoughts and views that are being projected from the stage right now are Antoine's and do not necessarily represent the black community as a whole. You should not take this as gospel and use it for an argument. Okay, that's my disclaimer. But this is what it feels like right now with everything going on in the media. It feels like white people on the right are yelling at white people on the left about black people in the middle and nobody's talking to us. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> we, we literally in the last two weeks have been having arguments about syrup. Now, honest to God, that 
That's not high up on black people's priority list. It's just really not. It's, it's not. We've got a lot of other things happening. I'm not saying we shouldn't have that conversation. I'm saying, can we have these other ones beforehand? Because what it feels like, and, and again, this is just my perspective, it feels like we're talking about everything around the issue except for the issue. And if this ever happens again, one side then can say, well, look, we gave you all this stuff. We, we didn't ask for that. Can we talk about this? That's the thing we've got to get to. And we can't have both sides talking about a side that they're not talking to. Yeah, I, I think, um, don't we do that spiritually in a lot of ways? Oh, my goodness. We like God is going, here's this issue in your life, and it's this huge sin or this huge whatever in your life, and, and you've got to deal with it. And, and we do, yeah, but I went to church last Sunday, and I gave a little bit. And I did, all of these things we're doing around the outside, and we're not dealing with the, with the issue. I just found out that in Oregon, uh, or just in the last couple days, um, there is a football game played, like probably in every state, between the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon Beavers. Um, that game forever has been called the Oregon Civil War. They are not going to refer to it as that anymore. And then they're going to feel good that they accomplished something in this issue of race. You just and, moved the goalposts. You didn't, you didn't yeah. change anything. Yeah. So, when was the last time you were kept from doing something? Maybe this is one of those issues where we need to be kept by God. Okay, so um, Paul and his companions then walk all the way to Troas. About 20 weeks they walked, 1,500 to 2,000 miles to get to Troas. Not really sure where God was leading them. And they get there, they have this vision of a man from Macedonia, and they concluded that God was telling them to preach the gospel there. And so the question is, given the current state of our, co our country, coronavirus, social distancing, then racial injustice, what can we conclude that God may be telling us? Because the way we've been going isn't working. And so I think we need to start there. And, and so, um, Antoine, what do you think God may be leading us to? And what can we conclude about what's going on right now? I, I, I think what he's leading us to is, again... This moment didn't just happen out of nowhere. So we have to understand, if, if we take George Floyd in just a vacuum, that's not what happened, okay? Let me, let me give you a rundown quickly. We had a pandemic. Nobody could go outside for three months. Now inside that pandemic, Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed in Georgia. And the people that shot and killed him were still at home in March at the end of March, almost April. So for six weeks, they got to stay at home. We didn't find out about it until we saw the video. Now, inside of that, about a week and a half before George Floyd happened, Breonna Taylor happened. Breonna Taylor was sitting and sleeping in her home, one of those no-knock warrants we heard about, knocked on the door, went in, killed her, wrong house. Now, right before George Floyd happened, Amanda Cooper happened in New York. We got to see someone actually uh, weaponize their whiteness. She's on the phone. The, the guy is bird watching. She's on the phone with the police, and she literally works herself up into this hysteria. 
and says, there's a black man threatening me, and he's no more closer to her than me to you. We got to see that. And then George Floyd happened. So everything and all the anger you see didn't just come from one moment. This is a vacuum of it. Now, I don't want us to miss this moment because this is a chance we get to fix it. We have, my, I, I'm a millennial, and I know Corey doesn't like that, but whatever. <laughs> I, I am. We're, we're, we're kind of in our mid-30s right now. So we have all this energy. We're amped up, we're amped up, we're amped up. Where are we going with it? What's happening? Because we're ready to go. But I don't know where we go. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I wish I had the answer. I wish I, I wish I had the answer for this. I think it takes our energy plus the older generation's wisdom to figure this thing out. Yeah. Um, so part of the reason we played that video was you just mentioned a whole bunch of things, half a dozen things that happened just this year. And we just talked about in the video how the deck has been stacked against people of color for most of or all of our lifetimes. And that there were things there that I, I didn't know. I didn't know that was going on. Um, and, and so we can say, well, that was the government. That was the government. Yeah, but who put those people in power? Um, I, I think uh, there's one, one verse that I wanted to throw out because I think it plays into this, into this moment. Genesis 6, 5, this is uh, as God's getting ready to call Noah and he's going to flood the earth, right, and save Noah and his family. This is what it says, Genesis 6, 5. God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. You want to know why we have this issue and why we're dealing with this issue and why it's been going on since forever? Because every thought of the human heart is evil all the time. Which is why you hear me say, stop following your stinking heart. Your heart's going to lead you in the wrong direction every single time. Stop that. Um, okay. So, Paul and his companions, I don't know where we're going. Paul and his companions sail to the other side of the sea. They get to Macedonia. They think, we've arrived, right? Everything is good. I think Antoine was talking about this. But, um, millennials uh, growing up in school were told this issue is all, like racism is over, right? We've dealt with it. It's in our past. And so, uh, as a country like Paul and his companions, like, we've arrived. This is where we're at. Everything is good now. And it says we stayed there several days. Luke writes that. We stayed there several days. Do you know why they stayed there several days? Because they didn't know where else to go. They didn't know where God was leading them. And the truth is, I think, no matter the color of your skin, none of us really know the way forward. No one really knows how to get out of this mess. We just know that we need to. Um, and, and so, like Antoine said, being quarantined for three months was like shaking up a can of pop. Maybe it is Kansas, shaking up a can of beer. Um, and, and, and then, you know, we started getting out, and then George Floyd, and then we kind of popped the top on that thing. And the energy and anger and frustration just came um, um, spewing out. Um, and, and so, um, here we are. We don't really know where to go. You got any more thoughts about that? How do we move forward from today? I don't, I don't know how we 
I don't know the end goal, okay? I, it's, that's outside of my realm of thinking here. I know the way we get there is together. Yeah. Okay? We, we, we got to get there together. We got to figure this thing out. We spend so much time on things that uh, separate us and keep us different. We got to start focusing on the things that, keep, that make us united. Okay? One of the reasons I feel like this conversation can't happen outside, it has to happen in the church, because what is the one thing that unites us? It is the cross. We, we're all united under that. So if we can start there, and again, understand that we have empathy for each other, then we can move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to end with this, with this idea. Uh, Paul and his companions have made it to the other side. They've made it to Macedonia. They've stayed there several days because they don't know where to go next. They don't know what the next step is. God hadn't showed that to them, I guess. And they're, they're stuck in their house, kind of like we were for three months. And they're like, what do we do? Like, God's not giving us any direction. We just don't know where to go. And so it, it, the text just says that on, on a Sabbath, they decide, let's go to the river. Because maybe there'll be some Jewish women there, some people there washing clothes and hanging out or whatever. It's cool down there. And, and we can have some conversations. And, and so they met a woman there as they went down there as a people. And so they just began having conversation with them like this, talking. And then they started sharing about Jesus and sharing the gospel. And the text says that the Lord, or that God opened Lydia's heart to receive the message. And, and that conversion of Lydia gives the gospel a foothold, not only in Greece, but then in Rome as well. And that whole part of the country um, is evangelized and churches begin out of Lydia's home as people come to her. And, and so that one conversation and that one moment opened the gospel up to a whole other part of the world. Um, and, and so I, I don't know the way forward exactly, but I know that the way forward isn't going to come from our president and it's not going to come from our political party and it's not going to come from any law that our senators and congressmen, and however that works, it's not going to come from them folks. It's not going to come from Pelosi or Pence because neither one of those them have it figured out either. And so this is not an issue. I know it appears that way on television, that it's an issue between Democrat and Republican. It is not, because neither one of those groups have it figured out. I believe that the way forward is going to be one life at a time, sitting like I was in my living room and then sitting with Antoine um, Tuesday night and having God open our hearts, one household and one life at a time. And I think maybe, let me give you this encouragement for your social media posting this week. We've got to stop trying so hard to convince others that our candidate or our party or our platform or our preference is the right one. We got to quit going out and saying, look, if you don't agree with me, unfriend me. Because that eliminates this opportunity right here. You can't have that. If you don't have friends who don't agree with you, you don't have friends. 
Oh. Is that good? Maybe oh. We should put that on the screen, but I don't think we have that. <laughs> you got to have people in your life that challenge you and that help you understand that aren't just speaking the same garbage into your mind that you think already. We've got to make room for Jesus to work and then let him open hearts and minds. And you've got the next point because it's really good. And I don't think that's it. This one right here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, we're going to end this right after this, right? Yeah, probably, Kay. yes. So check this. I, I've known you for a couple years now. Why is this my first time being here? That's what I thought. Now, here we go. I, I need you you know, were working at the Methodist. I, I, I got don't, a reason. Don't, don't try problem. to justify it. I come when I'm invited. Now, <laughs> I, I need you to understand this back off of his point. This is a great uh, quote that I got from my great-grandfather, and I love it. And it simply says is, your world is not the world. Yeah. Quit thinking your worldview is everything about the world. So when we have conversations like this, you have a point of view and a reference of everything, but you don't have the whole picture. God's the only one that has the whole picture, and you got me excited because now I really do feel like preaching. I want to do this. <laughs> no, but I really do. I want to do this because that night for you, June 3rd, right? Yeah. It hit. Something broke. George Floyd around the country, when we had to watch it, something broke. Now. Take that to where we're talking about Paul and him going on his evangelism missions. Paul was Saul before. He was known for killing Christians. He knew he was right. He knew he was right. What happened? On the road to Damascus, he saw a blinding light. It stopped him in his tracks, and he had to rethink everything that he thought he knew. Now, in rethinking everything he thought he knew, it made it hard for him to come back to the other side. Because understand, when he got back, the disciples really weren't cool with Saul coming in. No. They had, they had a, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? They had a uh, perceived notion of who he was. Now, think about this for a second. Until you meet somebody you have a perceived notion of who they are. If you're not around a bunch of black people and all you're getting is views from the media, you have a perceived notion of what they think like, how they act, what they do. Uh, can, I, can I give him the, the Go, story? Man. Okay, Go. see, me and Corey, we, we, it was a conversation that should have taken an hour probably, but it turned to three hours on Tuesday. It was, it was really funny, but I, I, hate this, I hate this one phrase and it really, really bothers me. Uh, we were talking about one of Corey's friends, and he was saying, he's the whitest black guy I know, and I stopped him in the tracks. I stopped him, I said, don't ever say that again. Because by doing that, what you do is you're saying, you don't act like what I think they should act like. Yeah. Now, there is no one set way to be black, I'm sorry. It doesn't happen like that. We all don't think the same, we all don't act the same. But when you do things like that, you are denying me of who I am. And again, you're judging me by what your perceived notion is. And your worldview isn't, your view of the world isn't the world. So just stop and think for a second when we have these things like this. 
You have your view of everything. What if you saw it from the other side? I'll end it with this, and this is really, really good. Uh, for years, we saw uh, the TV show Cops. I'll just use that for an example. So for years, the perceived notion was black people are thugs, black people are criminals, black people don't know how to act, so they need to go to jail. And that was our perceived notion of it. But here's the thing no one thought about. Black people had TVs too. And what did we see? Well, if you don't know what we see, I'll tell you. We got to see white people cuss out the police, the very police they say they're standing up to protect, and they protect them. They cussed them out. They hit them. They would, they would go after them, and somehow, amazingly, they were taken safely to jail. This is a problem that we got, we, we've got to fix a little bit, guys. When you, when you see the rioting happen, when you see the protest happening, let me say it that way, the protests are happening because we saw ourselves in George Floyd. I was telling him with Corey, I, when he was on the ground, I saw me. I saw my son on the ground. And until we can get to everybody doing it that way and seeing it that way, that's the only way I think change comes. Yeah. That's that empathy I'm talking about. I also told Corey, the same conversation my father had with me 20 years ago about driving, I had to have with my son, because he's 15. Shouldn't work this way. We keep saying this was a long time ago, a long time ago. I'm 34. My parents were born in 50 and 52. That means me and my brothers and my little sister are the first ones in our generation born with our full civil rights. This ain't a long time ago, guys. Empathy is the start, and then us coming together to fix this is the thing that'll take us further. And I'm done. I'm, 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 I've been talking. <laughs> I told you, you got me in the mode of preaching now. Yeah, I want to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's probably lots more that, that we could say. I, I want to I end uh, with this. And I don't know if this is the right way to say it, okay? It's just going to come out, and we're going to deal with it however it comes out. I think, as a, as, a, as a white guy, I think that we need to work together, all of us, regardless of the color of our skin, to move past our national shame and instead take a national stand. And we see some of that happening. And I want to just, I, I want to just, it, I, I know that it's difficult. And we try to, we try to, we want to separate things, we separate the protesters from the rioters and all of that. Can we just say, this has been going on for a long time. This has been pent up for a long time. And, 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 and we need to get through it. We need to take a stand. If you can do something, do something. I, my son was talking to a friend a few weeks ago. And he said, what can I do to help you? And he said, if you see something, say something. If you can do something, do it. And I think that's what we're called to do in Christ. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us that we're to stand up for those who are being oppressed and who are being unjustly accused. And I, I was, you were talking and I was thinking about all the times I've seen those videos on Facebook of some police officer pulling over some white woman in a car who is, was breaking the law. 
and is furious and cussing out the police officer, screaming and yelling and even taking off. And exactly what you said happened. They're not ripped out of their cars. They're not beaten. They're taken safely to jail. That's what's stuck in my mind. We got to get past that. But look, it has to start in our homes. It has to start with hundreds of conversations just like this. Hundreds of conversations with our children about how this works and how to move past it and how to move forward because the only way forward, as Antoine said, is together. It is. We say, um, from the time I was a kid, we say this, ignorance is bliss, but choosing ignorance is bad. We've got to stop choosing ignorance in this time. Last thing, last thing. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. Because it just made me think about it. So one of the reasons I do this is because I understand there are some things that you don't know. I get that. I had a real, God had to awaken that to me because I was like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. But if you honestly don't know, you don't know. Yeah. So it's incumbent on people on my side to explain this and give you our perspective on it because that's what it is. It's our perspective. And then that will shape your whole worldview. Now that you know, yeah. it's off me. Amen. It's off me. Yep. This happens again. You, you can't use the, I didn't know. No, you knew. Yep. Now, why'd you let it happen? There we go. Yeah. Um, so let me just thank you because Antoine hadn't been here. I mean, he's been in the building before, but yeah. you haven't been here as a part of, of, the, of the church service before. And so here I, I send this message to him and I'm like, hey, like just out of the blue. Hey, why don't you come into my vastly overpopulated white church and stand up in front of everybody and talk about this issue of race with me. That, that's got to be at least a little tough. Even though he grew up in El Dorado. <laughs> got to be a little tough. So thank you. No uh, problem. You got much for coming. You got to have me back here to actually preach. You got to have me back here to actually preach, Corey. I'm putting it back on you. Well, you if gotta, we do that. You got to have me do it. Then, um, yeah. I got to see what you, you might need a handheld mic and a towel. I, <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Corey. We, <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, the, I think the band is coming back up here, but can we just pray for yes. a minute? Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you um, for loving us, and I thank you for in spite of my sin and my failure and the stupid things that come out of my mouth. You love me. And the same goes for Antoine. Every single one of us. Yes. Your son died on the cross for each and every person. Doesn't matter what color their skin is or where they were born or, or while we were still sinners. Yes. People don't even care about you. And your son went to the cross for us. And, and God, you, you, just, you call us to go to the cross for others, to stand up for those who are being put down, and to take a stand when, when things aren't right. Over and over in the Old Testament, we read that you love honest scales. <laughs> and what that means is that you love it when everybody is treated equally yes. and fairly. Yes. God, we got to get this right. And so we ask for forgiveness where we failed, where our thinking um, ha has been wrong over the years 
I just ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to this issue and that we might, as Antoine said, be able to see things from other people's eyes. <laughs> There's so many things we could go to. Um, pull the plank out of your own eye before you try to get the splinter out of somebody else's. Over and over, this issue has come up. God, help us in this year to begin to deal with it in a real and substantive and lasting way so that our children and grandchildren, the next generations, are not going to have to deal with the same thing. Help us to move past it, God. Help us have a vision for getting past it. And thank you for this moment in time where we can look at it and deal with it and, um, and just help us to do that. God, would you show us a way forward? And, and look, just like Paul and his companions, we've got to get to this place where instead of just waiting around for something to change, we just go to the river. We just start talking to people and have conversations and, and, and let you open the hearts of those people who you've been drawn. And then, and then with those conversations, we'll continue. And not only that people will hear the gospel and give their lives to you, which, which absolutely should change the way we think about everybody, mm -hmm. change the way we think about race by coming under your, under your banner. But also, God, that we, would just, um, that we would just have love for everybody. We'd love you, and then we'd love others, regardless of where they're from, what color their skin is, or their background, their history, their baggage. We just love, and we let you handle it. God, thank you for this moment, for this day. Thanks for Antoine. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks. No problem, no problem. We're going to do one more song and then you can leave. Thanks for coming this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. A uh, couple things. We are looking for another person to help us run uh, sound and lights and stuff. So if you think that might be you, maybe God's like going, hey, you should get involved. Uh, talk to me. Talk to Dave. Wave your hand, Dave. Hi, there he's sitting down. See, he's so exhausted from doing this. Um, so we're looking for somebody else. So if you want to talk to Dave or talk to me about that. Also, if you've got a few minutes and you want to stick around and help us pack up, we would love that because we were here for a long time last week. So if you can do that, great. Uh, if not, uh, love you. Have lots of conversations this week. Uh, we'll see you back here next Sunday morning.